just going to make another adjustment. Dancing in the moonlight. Is that better? It's cut me in its spotlight. It's all right. Dancing in the moonlight. Free hearing aids with PRSI at Specsavers. Music to your ears. Find out more online. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Connor Faulkman and this is Driving Life. Welcome to episode 19, where I meet the well-known historian and commentator Dermot Ferreter, Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD. He was good enough to welcome me into his very professorial office in Belfield. It's in the arts block for those like me who pass through the college as a wide-eyed and slightly chaotic youngster. We chat about life for students these days on the campus, and he is fascinating on 20th century Irish history. A hundred years of independence and the decade of centenaries gives us plenty to reflect on. Dermot sees much to admire in the early state, from the early years of Irish motoring to the Irish Countrywoman's Association and rural electrification, he's constantly able to challenge our tendency to revisionism with a subtle and nuanced understanding of the times and the context of our history. Do remember to check out previous episodes where I meet people like Frankie Sheehan, Teresa Mannion, Ivan Yates, Geraldine Herbert, Henry McKean and others. They're all listed together nicely on seniortimes.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. Just Google Driving Life with Connor Faulkner and you can email me at connorfaulkner at gmail.com. But now let's head for UCD and meet Dermot. Dermot Ferreter, um, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for talking to me. Lovely to be here. Lovely to be here, it is. And um, let's just explain where here is. Uh, we're in Dermot's office in UCD. Um, in one of the old parts of UCD, people, you know, 30 years ago will, will recognise the arts block still here. We're upstairs in the arts block in your corner office. I'm clinging on for dear life uh, before they come in and demand that I take all my books out so they can refurbish well no the ucd campus was was 50 years old last year so people of a particular generation will remember the move to belfield that was yeah. a big deal and of course it was designed in a particular way um which included these offices you know included these offices i remember my parents talking about that when they having been in ucd in earlsford terrace yeah back in their time and this was the new complex yeah. when uh, when we moved into it for my brief inglorious yeah. UCD career. The walls are lined with books, as you would like to expect um, for a professor of, of modern Irish history. Um, I can see an eclectic mix there, everything from Mein Kampf to Tony Blair's book to uh, booms and busts. Of oh, the I got to say they might have more in common than me. When we think, you know, isn't isn't to some degree is that a recurring theme? The you know there there are threads that run through all the titles on those shelves and through uh, through our through our history as well. Yeah, and um, even in a personal way, this was the very first office that I was in when I was an undergraduate here. I came oh. to UCD in 1989, and my tutor then was Ronan Fanning, who was the professor of modern history at that stage, and wow. he was in this office. Uh, he died a couple of years ago. Um, but so you know there's that kind of yeah. full circle personally uh, but obviously the threads running through 
uh, all of all, all of the different books that you would have consulted over the years. Yeah, they t- they tell the story as as history does. Um, so in your own case, um, tell me a little bit about your own background. I mean, what what brought you to academia as a as a life choice? Well, it wasn't part of a master plan. I mean, I grew up not too far from here in Dundrum. And my parents were both primary school teachers. Yeah. And they had met each other when they were training to be teachers as teenagers. They got married very young and there were four of us. I was the third of four. And there wasn't... I always remember from growing up in the house that there were interesting books on the shelves. Yeah. And I'm conscious now that, you know, there are people who don't grow up with any books. Yeah. Never mind interesting books on the shelves. And I suppose you only appreciate that when you're older that it was a house where books were appreciated. Yeah. My parents were very active as well as trade unionists and, you know, were quite politicised and mm. there was a big interest in politics in the house as well. But I think I had an intense curiosity from a, an early age, which I think is partly due to the absence of grandparents. Okay. None of my grandparents were alive when I was growing up. My father's father uh, was 57 when uh, my father was born, so... He died oh, right. in the 60s uh, when my father was quite young, so I never met him. Uh, and my mother had lost both her parents when she was young. And That left was, one grandmother, was there? There was one grandmother who was killed by a drunk driver in 1980. Oh, horrible. So she was the only grandparent we had. And, you know, we were very young. I was only um, seven or eight when she, when she was killed. So I was always curious. Yeah. Because there wasn't much evidence of them around <laughs> you know photographs yeah. or anything like that and I remember finding an old black magic box of chocolates do you remember those uh, old cardboard yes, boxes yeah. and there were a few press cuttings in it and my father my father's father was porter head porter of the Hayes Hotel in Thurris the famous Hayes oh, Hotel oh yes yeah yeah where the GAA was, was founded yeah and it was it was a fine hotel then and he was very proud of it but the press report was to mark his retirement Sure, he'd done that job for 40 years. And it got me really curious about his backstory because he was born in the 1890s yeah. and he talked about the black and tans and the, and the, the difficult days when he was in Thurlis. And I knew he was a you know a, a, a ardent Republican. Mm. But that made me more and more curious. You know, when you get scraps yeah, or yeah. fragments, you want There's something There's always more. a fascination. I mean, I think maybe everybody's had the experience. You get an old tea chest or something mm. or whatever it is. And in the bottom is a scrumpled up newspaper from 32 years ago yeah. um, and it's endlessly fascinating isn't it? Um, Absolutely you know, and everything's digitised now which is fantastic yeah. and it does democratise access to, to source material but there's still something lovely about having the physical evidence and, the, and yeah. the actual document and all that and I mean obviously I mean I was being trained as a historian before uh, the year of digitization, so I'm still drawn, mm. you know, toward, towards the original records. But that curiosity started. I can see, looking back now, that curiosity started with that little yeah. box and the few scraps that were there. And then, of course, I started asking questions. And it's interesting talking to your parents about things like that because they don't necessarily have an awful lot of information themselves. Mm. There were things that weren't talked about, particularly when people died prematurely. You know, or or if there were you know difficult uh, issues, we, we we had family histories that we kind of uncovered. Um, you know, they weren't sort of there present in, in our childhood, but later on in curiosity, we just kind of uncovered. Uh, so I know that my maternal grandmother had um, had seven miscarriages before she'd had her, had her first baby, uh, and my father was an only child. So we were very unusual in that I've no first cousins, which for an Irish family, yes, is, is remarkable. Yeah. And I go one bubble further out and there's gaggles of them but we were a small kind of nuclear yeah. family and my parents were 
I think, eccentric in or ahead of their time in ways. They weren't lefties particularly, but they were very much anti-clerical. Yeah. They were part of this young generation in UCD of their time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so they cared about things like the preservation of Georgian Dublin yeah. and um, what became the social agenda in the yeah. 80s. It was very much... And my father was only a few years dead, but um, his joke, he, he never used the word priest. Uh, all the time I can remember, he referred to them as druids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which tells you a lot. Which tells you a yeah. lot, yeah. And that was the thing. I mean, my parents as well were products of the 1960s. Mm. You know, they were born in the late 1940s. And they were hugely influenced by the changes and the stirrings. Having said that, I mean, they still were educated in very conservative institutions. I mean, my father was in St. Pat's in the teacher training college, right. which was like a seminary, really. Oh, yeah, and it was absolutely. all male. Yeah. And my mother was in Mary I in, 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 um, in Limerick. In Limerick. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, she felt she was in a convent, you know. Yeah. And yet, you know, they were conscious, I suppose, that they were moving on. Mm. from the priorities of their own parents you know uh, my f- father recalls uh, making a disparaging comment about Eamon de Valera when he was going for his second term as president because right. he was so old he was nearly 90 at that stage and almost yeah. completely blind and my father didn't approve of was this 77 or something when he eventually well he died in 75 but 75. He, was, he was president until 1973 like he was yeah. 60 years in public life and my father expressed uh, you know, a young man's displeasure <laughs> at this old fellow up in the Auris and his mother was appalled that he could be so irreverent, you know. But then they, of course, took that left turn. Yeah. You know, became involved in, in trade unions. So, so, and so, so yours, uh, your house, like mine, wasn't one of the ones that had the sacred heart of Jesus. I wasn't a religious household at all. And no, I, I, I was very conscious of that as a teenager because my peers were coming from very religious yeah. households where there was still compulsory attendance at mass we didn't have that you know yeah. now I did have I mean I I had a different experience of religion because I was a boy chorister oh, in, right. in the pro-cathedral in the Palestrina boys choir uh, um, on foot of your you beautiful know, clear singing voice you wouldn't know it to look at me now <laughs> uh, but I spent four years in there between the ages of 10 and 14 and I mean I still remember all the incense and the, the trappings and the atmosphere but what interested me of course and my fellow choristers was the music. We weren't particularly interested in what yeah. was being said from the altar, but I was very conscious of all the tradition behind yes. it and, and I suppose the strength and the power behind it when you think of the pro-cathedral and... Gives it gravitas, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, but it also, you know, during a difficult day, d- decade, the 80s, um, you know, mass attendance rates in Ireland were still extraordinarily yeah. high. There was still a, an awful lot of public obedience and deference. Do you know what? Undoubtedly true. Let's um, let's wind the arc back a little bit and see if we can talk to there. Um, the state is a hundred years old. Mm. Uh, lots of people are hearing you these days, um, making contributions to the national conversation, whether it's on you know on the airwaves and documentaries in in stuff that you're writing, and you have written a series of books concentrating on twentieth century mm. Irish history. Um, so, in a hundred years of inverted commas freedom. Um, I'll tell you my simplistic analysis. Um, For 50 years, we had utter stagnation, uh, could look at nothing uh, other than Britain and our our legacy and spite directed towards us. We're becoming, in almost every way it could be measured, a failed state. Um, And then something of a turnaround in the 60s, perhaps. Um, And then 
my parents' generation, your parents' generation, and then us. Uh, I don't know where you date it. I mean, if you throw a dart, maybe 1988, Dublin's millennium. I don't know. There was a time, maybe it's the first, maybe you go back as far as T.K. Whitaker, but there was a time when we pivoted. And then for the last 30 years, one of the most successful and self-confident um, and, and firm and secure democracies in the world. Um, how did that happen? Is, is that, do you agree with that arc? No, I don't agree with it at all. Uh, there you uh, go. Not at all. I must read a history book. Um, that arc drives me mad, to be honest with you. And it, like, it's, it's a very common interpretation yeah. of 20th century Ireland. I don't see it like that. I see us 100 years ago as having come out of an extraordinarily difficult period, obviously the Civil War. Mm. Uh, you've got to be conscious too of the idealism of the, the men and women that underpinned that revolutionary period. It ended, of course, in, in, in great tragedy, but it also ended with an opportunity. Yeah. Albeit not the opportunity that many had wanted of the you know the 32 county republic, but an opportunity to build a new state. And yes, there were mistakes made, and yes, there was stagnation, and there were very difficult periods, but We've also got to be conscious of where we fit into the wider scheme of things. We had remarkable stability. We recovered from our civil war uh, very quickly. We had remarkably able uh, people in this state, including those who were running the state apparatus. They were conservative in lots of ways, but they were also very accomplished in other ways. Ireland joined the League of Nations, for example, uh, in in 1923. Do you know the way we would have been clapping ourselves on the back in recent times about getting a seat on the UN Security Council? That's actually a hundred-year story about mm. how a small country projects itself and presents itself to the outside world. De Valera was very adamant that you know we had uh, a, had to have a voice internationally as a small state. And did we initially want mention in the Versailles negotiations as 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 a state? Oh, absolutely, Germany. And, and no, but we wanted to be recognised as having the validity of self determination and the right to self determination. Yeah, emerging and from a war that had been fought for the rights of small nations. Absolutely, and I mean we have to try and understand it through the lens of that generation. I think we have too much of a tendency to, to look back to the lens of the present and say, you know, why were we so conservative, stagnant, or whatever? And I'm not denying the difficulties but I also think you're dealing with a, a generation both you know in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s who were remarkably able and accomplished uh, in many ways yes they got big economic yes uh, issues wrong or they didn't deal with them uh, very effectively and yet at the same time if you take the second world war mm. which again was a difficult period though thankfully we weren't if we were relatively unscathed compared to the rest of the continent but there was pride in us going our own way. There was dignity. Yeah. That was the perception. This was also about a dignified claim to be able to maximize your independence. Yes. You know, that you couldn't claim to be truly independent unless you could stay out of an international conflict. That wouldn't have been possible unless we had separated. It was a truly sovereign choice. Yeah, it? and I mean, sovereignty is important. And I know we can, obviously, for understandable reasons, try and date the progress or the yeah. modernization of Ireland to, to economic change. But, you know, I, I think we have to be a bit more, more, more nuanced than that. So the, the, the one obvious myopia that, uh, that everybody has, and you can only see the world from where you're standing, but we all look back with that revisionism. Why were they so conservative? Yeah. And it's not as if they were looking at each other at the time saying, hey, we're conservative. I think one of the other contexts which you lay out very well when I've heard you speak is it's not just the context of history. It's the context of what was happening in the rest of Europe at the time. So, you know, Ireland can be convulsed by its civil war. But remember that it wouldn't have counted as a skirmish in the Spanish civil war. Oh, a drop. Uh, A drop. Um, And then the barbarism of the Russian yeah. uh, civil war yeah. and then the conflagration that consumed Europe. So we have a tendency to sort of self-importance. And I think likewise, when we were a very conservative state, 
so was much of the rest of the world. Uh, I mean, Irish policy at that time wouldn't have been an outlier, would it? Well, can I give you a small example from exactly 100 years ago? Uh, a lot of women who had been involved in the revolution, including in Common Amman, yeah. they were adamant that the 1916 promise of equality had to be delivered. And the 1916 proclamation promised mm-hmm. women equality and access to the franchise. Yeah. And eventually, Irish men and women got the vote on equal terms in 1922. That was before women in Britain got the vote. Yeah. That was before women in many parts of Europe got the vote. So, you know, there was a commitment there uh, that was more advanced than existed in some other European countries. And also the fact that we held on to our democracy, particularly in the 1930s. Particularly in the 1930s. And, you know, there have been a number of potential tipping points. 1930s is clearly one of them. And perhaps even the financial crisis where, you know, we we, we dipped in and out of it. Very much. But but through it all, we we can now say that we're 100 years as a stable democracy. I think at the height of the Second World War, maybe after the fall of France, the number of democracies left on the planet was was down to only seven or eight. The flame almost went out. Ourselves and Finland and the UK are the three countries that have sustained their democracy unbroken for the hundred years that we're talking about. It's a very small club. It's a very small club. Uh, And of course, you know, the the UK had its own particular trajectory and and history of imperialism, which is, you know, a different framework of interpretation. But, you know, we do need to think about it like that. Now, we also need to think about the consequences of stability. Mm. And emigration, horribly, makes Ireland a more stable entity because it takes out an awful lot of the potential radicals. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times? Visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook. 500,000 people roughly in the 1950s alone left this country and I remember finding a a document, a government memorandum when they were worried that Britain would reimpose restrictions in the aftermath of the Second World War. travel restrictions. Yeah, yeah. and that the the memorandum was saying, what would we do if all these people come home? You know, they've got used to a welfare state or they got used to a higher standard of living. We can't provide that. And you you will have an an army almost of unemployed young men with no prospects. Yeah. And the whole, you know, the Republic would start to look like an African-American ghetto. They were worried about that. Now, it didn't happen in the end, but it it was a safety valve in that sense. But there's also another one of the consequences of stability. What kept us united in many respects Mm -hmm. was our shared faith. So if you take the creation of the state right. 100 years ago, 94% of the new free state were Catholic. Yes. Whatever divided them, most of them were united in the Catholic faith. The government, of course, was quite happy. But was that an ethnic identity or, or um, a theological one? Uh, it's more of an ethnic identity. 
in a way, nationalism and Catholicism are seen as two sides to the same coin. Yeah, you yeah. know, there's, there's a big celebration in 1929 for the centenary of Catholic emancipation, you know? Right, yeah. And it's a public mobilization. There's a very strong emphasis on, on public visibility. You see it in the Eucharistic Congress in 1932 yes, as yeah. well. And a lot of the messages that are being promulgated are not just about religion, they're about we're finally free. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, these are two sides of, uh, of the same coin. And a lot of it, of course, um, Lead, it, it leads to an awful lot of power for the church because it suited the state to say, okay, yeah. well, you have this input to education and health and so on. We leave you at that. And of course, the church got far too much power and abused that power. And we've learned an awful lot the last 20 yeah. years about the consequences of that. So there are consequences to stability. There are indeed. Um, and, you know, one of the thing, another myopia perhaps that we do is it's, it's lovely to have a scapegoat in the Catholic Church because we, we, we can we can forgive ourselves for everything that happened in that period by saying it was a Catholic Church they were too powerful um, but you can't disaggregate the Catholic Not Church from the society no. it's the, one of the points there's a photograph over there in the corner of uh, a well-known nun, Margaret McCartan, oh, okay. who died during uh, COVID. She was one of my first teachers here in, in UCD. Sister Ben, as she was better known, and she right. was a radical Dominican nun. And she did an awful lot of work on the, the nuns and the history of nuns, and not just her own order, but generally. Um, and, of course, she was looking at all the different areas of life that the nuns were involved in. Yes. And all, a lot of the good work they did as well yeah. when it came to educating women in particular, including my mother's mm. uh, generation. And there was a tendency to stereotype the bad nun particularly in more recent times, you know. Yes. Uh, and we have to think about societal responsibility. Um, and even when we're thinking about, you know, the, the terrible experiences in institutions, you have to ask yourself sometimes, who dropped them at the door yeah. of those institutions? Yeah. What about the whole question of stigma and shame and, and societal involvement and the networks? They're power alliances, really. Now, you could, of course, make the argument that it was the church that instilled that sense of shame and stigma but that's not the full story no it isn't uh, and as I say too convenient to point at yeah. them and absolve ourselves um, I, so I, I take your, your your point on it being a very simplistic and false analysis to say you know 50 years bad 20 yeah. years moderate and then along we came and everything is great mm-hmm. uh, mind you if you look at Ireland's internationally benchmarked indicators of you know all the signs associated with prosperity you do, do date it from around about that period oh you would now, yeah. uh, now whether that's the rooster claiming credit for the sunrise or we, we just happen to be in the right place at the right time but but a bigger and more self-confident nation um, now uh, so do you feel that that's true of the Republic of Ireland and and if so what what do we do with that newfound confidence in the next 50 years. I remember in at the very end of the 20th century in 1999, Sean O'Morga, who was a great documentary maker, yeah. was looking back on the 20th century and it was a big landmark series, you know, mm. and it looks quite old-fashioned as, as we'd see it now in relation to, you know, interviewing the great men uh, mm. about the progress of the state and so on. But there was very interesting material in it. But he was asked about it. Uh, what were the conclusions that he had drawn yeah. about Ireland and the cusp of the early 21st century and he said I think we're approaching maturity if not quite wisdom Hmm. and I would take that on now and say we need to achieve wisdom because we do have a lot of maturity in some respects but we have not been able to solve big hugely important problems that have dogged us for far too long. Uh, well, the, the existential problem that we still haven't solved, the unfinished conversation, is a peaceful resolution for Northern Ireland in whatever 
shape or form that looks like. Yeah. Um, I don't know, defer to your expertise on this, but again, from, from an idiot's bar stool, um, it strikes me that forcing a snap uh, unity referendum uh, would be as unwise as Brexit proved to be, uh, particularly when those pushing for it seem to be guilty of gesture politics. Um, and when asked, do not seem to have an answer to the question, what do you propose to do with a million loyal British subjects in your putative new republic? Um, what's your take on, on where we are now? My take on where we are now is that we're nowhere near that point where we could do that without trouble. Yeah. You know, uh, you think about all the progress that has been made in recent times. It's been on the back of painstaking dialogue, you know. I mean, next year uh, will be the, um, you know, the 25th anniversary of the Belfast Agreement. Yeah. And, you know, think about how long it took to get to that point, you know, and all of the dialogue that was needed and all the, the mindset changes that were needed. It's a perfectly legitimate aspiration, yeah. a political aspiration that it always has. But you're right, we're going to be faced with the same question in reverse, because if you go back to the creation of, of partition and the border on the island, you know, you had a one third minority. In the new Northern Ireland, that didn't want to be there. It was an unassailable uh, minority. So, they, so much know, so that there was a nine county conversation amongst uh, unionists, wasn't there? I mean, there were nine county men and six county men because mm. it seemed viable for the province of Ulster to be permanently British. But um, but they settled for six counties because they had an inbuilt two thirds majority and it was more manageable from their point of view. Yeah. But that was from a supremacy point of view, yes. you know, that we will have that. And of course, that supremacy is gone. And that's one of the crucial developments of recent times. But that doesn't automatically mean that you're going to have this uh, smooth transition towards unity, you mm. know, because it's not just about, you know, unionists losing their grip on power. Uh, it's about what const what would constitute a new Ireland or an agreed Ireland or whatever you want to call it. And there isn't much appetite for it. You know, there's been a lot of exaggeration about the idea that this has been talked about constantly. Yeah. You know, if Irish people are asked in the Republic... Would they like to see a united Ireland? Broadly, since the 1970s, two-thirds would express a desire yeah. to see a united Ireland. But it could be quite abstract for a lot of them. And support is, is wide but not deep. Exactly. So even the simplest yeah. caveat, you yeah. know, would you accept a 5% increase in your yeah. income tax yeah. in return for United Ireland? There's, there's an immediate follow-up. Yeah, but there's also a mental partition there, you know, which... You could argue it's understandable given mm. everything that's happened, you know, but there's, you know, you, you've got to distinguish between the aspiration and the theory and the actual practicalities of it. Is it a burning question? I remember reading an interview with Pierce Doherty, who was one of the most high profile Sinn Fein spokesperson now. And of course, he represents the Donegal constituency. He does. And he did say in 2016, it's not their burning question, unity. My constituents, those yeah. who are voting for me. And then Brexit happened. And yes, Brexit made it more likely. It did. It and did. it opened up stuff that we thought had been settled. Um, so it was a game changer. But that doesn't mean that you're going to have this complete transformation in how people think uh, about yeah. unity. It just made it... Uh, part of the, the post-Brexit fallout. Uh, and it, it, it did certainly create uh, more of a momentum for those who want to see it. But ultimately, you've got to look at what is involved in living together. Yeah, I, I, th I think there's a clear, well, there ought to be a clear understanding that this is, this is going to be nuanced. It won't be as simple as a Brexit. Um, perhaps the optimist might say that, um, you know, once upon a time, an American would have been terrified at the prospect of a, of a black president. President Obama came and went, and you know, people might politically love him or hate him, um, but it's not a, a scary prospect. It won't change your life. Um, for a unionist looking south at the Republic, 
public of 30, 40 years ago, it would have seemed a very unattractive Roman Catholic monoculture, uh, far, far away from the safety of the United Kingdom. Um, it doesn't look that way now. It looks no, I mean, one of the slogans they used to have, of course, was that home rule would be Rome, Rome rule. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that, that looks increasingly uh, ironic now, mm. when, you know, when you consider the, the vast changes in the Republic. Um, but what I find interesting about that, that sense of looking to the Republic, and obviously you've got hostility towards the South. Yeah. They also had a lot of hostility towards London. And we've got to think about this. There are those today who don't consider themselves to be looking to either London or Dublin. They consider themselves Northern Irish. Yeah. They consider themselves to be Ulster men or women, you know, or there might be a degree of fluidity around it. There's a very strong other in Northern Ireland yeah. now, which is one of the big changes of, of, of recent decades. Well, in a hypothetical world where there was no Republic of Ireland and, and you know, Ireland was wholly part of the United Kingdom, the Northern Irish fraternity, their affiliations with Scotland, with Scottish Protestants, yeah. it's, and, and insofar as of any relationship with London, it's always yeah. been a semi-hostile. Yeah, and the wider question that's linked to this is the future of the United Kingdom, not yes. just of Northern Ireland. I remember being over in Edinburgh, for the book festival at the time, I published a book on the border, mm. which was described at the time as a short, angry book, which is probably true, <laughs> because it, it was partly written in frustration at the ignorance that existed yeah. in Britain about this fundamentally important question. stupefying. You know, yeah. and, and, and of course, it turned out to be the most intractable issue, mm. and they had dismissed it, you know, as an irrelevance. The tail uh, But when I was up yeah. in Edinburgh, the palpable anger towards Downing Street and Johnson, you know, mm. they didn't want any truck with that. And, and as, as I suspected at the time, you know, Brexit would further embolden Scottish nationalists, yeah. you know. So there's a bigger question. And do you know what's, that, what's also on the rise? Is Welsh nationalism. Yes. And, and you know, it, it, coming up last, but but who knows? Yeah. Because, um, uh, you know, constitutions, uh, constitutional structures can change very, very quickly. Um, so the whole UK just look, it looks frailer, you know. And of course, does. the longer that clown is in Downing Street... Uh, the more frailty I think will be exposed so a lot is up in the air but I mean we do have to think you're right about whether or not there is something to be learned from what happened 100 Mm. years ago you know and how you manage uh, and how you try and avoid a situation becoming frozen yeah you know um, and I guess also we have to avoid being a, a completely different context. I was heard Michael O'Leary talk once and he was talking about uh, cleaning up against the competition in freshly deregulated European skies at the end of the 1990s. Um, and he said everywhere we went, we found Jabba the Hutt in charge. He said they all had fat, dumb and happy syndrome and it was ridiculously easy to walk rings around them. Um, and, uh, you know, that can be, I, th- I think, one of the curses of prosperity. You know, you, you get two generations of unbroken prosperity uh, and you you lose it just through complacency. <laughs> um, do, do you fear that for modern Ireland? Always you are reminded as a historian that we don't learn the lessons of history. Yeah. You know, we've had cycles of hmm. not just boom and bust uh, in more recent years, but we've had 30-year cycles of crisis. Yes. We had a crisis in the 1920s, obviously, which was an existential crisis. Mm-hmm. Could the state survive? Yes. You know, and we had our own civil war. We had a huge crisis in the 1950s in relation to the exodus of people. Yes. You know, the traffic, the human traffic, which has profound psychological consequences. And the reality that it was, in fact, a failed state. And there was, there was a lot of silence ironically about emigration, ironically given that it affected so many people, it could be very difficult to talk about. Yeah. Because most people hoped that it would be temporary. 
But for many, that was it. They were gone. And then 30 years later, we had another crisis in the 1980s. And I remember that one vividly. Not in the sense that we were impoverished, because we were lucky. We had parents who were working uh, and, you know, we were educated. Um, but I do remember the... Uh, us talking about will we get Morrison or Donnelly visas or desperate you know and again it was a different type of emigration in some ways because there were more uh, educated people leaving Uh, but we had that and then 30 years later we had the crash Uh, and again you know there was a broader international context for that so I suppose I was I'm almost conscious of that side I, I don't expect that to change yeah, because you don't expect human nature to change. No. Well, I mean, it, it hasn't in recorded histories. And of course, we are, um, you know, you talked about the change in the economic model. We're very vulnerable to external shock. We are. You know, that's the nature of the economy we have on the, on the world we inhabit now and where we've positioned ourselves. Mm-hmm. And there can be huge benefits to it. But there can also be a very quick change in your fortunes. As we've experienced. Yeah. Um, do you know, one thing I think is interesting to observe about Ireland is it, 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 it can be a flat society, a, a good republic in a sense, in that there is social mobility. You can um, you know, emerge from a, a relatively... People still have lots of disadvantage, but, but more than is typical globally, you can emerge from a poor background and prosper in Ireland. You can become wealthy uh, and you can go the other direction. In a, in a generation as well. Um, so maybe that's a good dynamic for us. But but there are areas where we're clearly failing at the moment, aren't there? Well, I mean, back to the issue I was saying about not being able to have the wisdom to crack those difficult nuts, you know, health, housing. Yeah. Um, I, I found I always find it very interesting looking at the National Health Service. And an awful lot of Irish people who, who emigrated, the, the generation I'm talking about, were working in the National yes, Health yeah. Service. And for all its flaws, there's still considerable pride in the fact that it is a national health service yeah. and through all of the difficult periods it has endured and of course in many respects you could see the best of it again during yeah. go, during recent times we have never managed to create a national health service no we never have to our shame to and our, we are a republic and it is inexcusable at this stage that we haven't done that and obviously housing we've had housing crises since the foundation of the state yeah. but what we did in previous decades and I wrote a lot about the 1970s. You have indeed. When yeah. 100,000 houses were built in, in a couple of years because the state aggressively intervened. You know? And had to, because yeah. it was an international embarrassment. Yeah. The Dublin slums were yeah. literally the worst in Europe. But it became privatised in, in subsequent decades, you know, the whole question of social housing. Um, and we're still dealing with the consequences of that. Yeah, we are. Uh, so we haven't managed... We did. It feels like we did better on that before. I mean, there were some things that the early Irish state was quite visionary about. I mean, whether it's building Arden or Crusher, I, I think I read somewhere, it might have even been one of yours, but I think the senior project manager in charge of the building of Arden or Crusher was some 26 years of age. He was, oh, absolutely, <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, yeah. a state Very backing able. its youth yeah. to that extent. Yeah. And um, you look back at some of those projects and just wish we could have done more. You, you wrote about the Irish Country Women's Association yeah. and they're helping roll out rural electricity. Um, well, I mean, as you, they saw it, I mean, they had a job to break down the conservatism of the men, yeah. you know. And I mean, these were the women who were walking off to the well to get pails of water, you know, this backbreaking work. Yeah. And some of them were in houses where the farmers are saying, you know, there's no way electricity is coming into this house. 
you know. <laughs> so they did the, the Irish Country Women's Association. It's an example I would often use, of course, of, of an organisation that a perception might exist that it's uh, a conservative organisation that was primarily concerned with yeah. baking. Yeah. But you know, they were involved in adult education. There were an awful lot of women who were running farms and managing yeah. farms, even though they mightn't have been formally designated as such. That's right, and uh, they, it was an, it was a, 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 a subtle way for them to participate socially because it was an influence, participate politically even. Absolutely, became an influential. Yeah, and I would have interviewed some of the older women yeah. uh, in in the Irish Country Women's Association in the 1990s. I remember going out to Kerry to interview Kitta Hearn, right. uh, who was the first female TD for North Kerry. And she moved from the ICA Country Women's Association into politics. You know? yeah. And for some of them it was, uh, it, it did open the door. Now it was a non-political organisation, so it was tricky mm. uh, to manage. But they were a fascinating generation of women. And they were, they were quite a, unsure about whether they should be called feminists. Yeah, because that had associations, didn't it? Oh, yeah. Some of them didn't like that, you know, because they were thinking of the women's livers. Yeah. Who sometimes they would describe in very disparaging terms. And I was trying to make the point that, well, you know, ultimately what I'm looking about is this thread that's running through 20th century Ireland of women helping themselves to improve their lot. Yeah. In, you know, in, in a different context. And obviously by the late 60s, early 70s, I wrote a book uh, called Occasions of Sin, mm. which is about the history of sexuality. And part of that was the battles that were being fought by the Irish Women's Liberation Movement, who were part of a broad they were. international women's liberation movement. And they had battles to fight about contraception, which were not just Irish battles at all. No, and, and again, one of the things that you do, I think, quite refreshingly, is you do set these things in context mm. so we can look back at the Irish history and think we were unique and outliers, yeah. but we were not. And, and we weren't the only country, to, you know, fighting about abortion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, that that's still resonating today, obviously. Well, it is with Roe versus Wade. Yeah. Of course it is, yeah. Um, so we weren't uniquely a conservative state, and we managed to do a lot of things, including the gradual empowerment of women, um, arguably still imperfect, yeah. but unquestionably very different from where it was. And even in terms of, you know, I think we might have lagged the curve internationally in generations gone by, we're probably ahead of the curve or at least matching it yeah. now. So much that we've done is good. Um, and in becoming a, a 20th century country, one of the things we did was build infrastructure and roads and the car arrived. My um, sort of thing that I've been doing, AA is a hundred and something years yeah. old. I remember yeah. we had a commemorative stamp, a, f a, a first edition stamp for the centenary got a good few years ago. Um, but it was a, a sign of prosperity arriving in Ireland um, and car numbers went up and uh, you know, we, we, we modernised. It was a sign of us feeling... Oh, like absolutely. I think I, for some people, this was the devil arriving. Yeah. I mean, the first motor car came into Ireland in the late 1890s. It was actually powered by steam, uh, which didn't work very well with Ireland's climate, you know. Um, and of course, these were newfangled, terrifying yeah. things as far as some observers were concerned. And there's a very interesting political context around it because, you know... It, we were under British rule at that stage, obviously, and there was yeah. a Locomotive Act in 1896. A lot of the British parliamentarians didn't want to legislate for motor driving because a lot of them had interests in the rail companies and it would affect oh, right. their pocket. It's very interesting to look at that. Um, and when they come over then... So they're like canal owners of yeah, the previous year. Or, yeah, but they, and they were dangerous. Um, you know, when you look at what developed in subsequent decades, yeah. you know, you didn't have to be insured. You didn't have to have a license at, all, uh, yeah. at the outset. Um, and you were likely prosperous in the first instance, even to consider. Oh, absolutely, you had to be. You yeah, know? Uh, and you know th there wasn't um, provisions for for insurance until the nineteen thirties. Yeah. Now, was... in nineteen fourteen, uh, there were just under twenty thousand cars in Ireland, so it had taken off. 
Yeah. But you know, it, you know, it's still a relatively small number. But they were bloody dangerous. Yeah. Oh. And yeah. Like when you look at the road fatality figures around that period. Um, they're very, very high given the small amount of cars. It, it reached its. Well, I wonder if the early, early years of motoring might have been statistically even more dangerous. Oh, they were. Uh, yeah. And there were still people being killed by horse and drawn oh, yeah. <laughs> cars as um, cars. Well, you could have been killed by a tram in Dublin as late as 1957, yeah. and then you know you would have had to wait, wait for the Lewis to be yeah. killed for a tram, yeah. killed by a tram. Well, one of the things I did when I, I, I did a book in the 1970s, and there's a very interesting debate going on in the 1970s about road safety about seat belts, yeah. about breathalysers. Um, and I had a particular interest in this. I mentioned about my grandmother being killed yeah. uh, by a dangerous driver uh, in 1980. Um, and So I, I just had a particular interest in this. It's just something I found here, which I just yeah. want... Let's uh, have a look, because I, 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 I am aware myself of the early 70s being the worst. Oh, it's uh, shocking. You know, when we consider now... It's a measure of the progress that we've made. Yeah. Like, we'd be appalled at the kind of figures we're looking at here. Now, this is from February 1972, which is the month I was born. And oh, it was nice. a letter written by Bobby Malloy, who was the Minister for Local Government at the time. He was That's a very right. young Fianna Fáil minister. He went on to become a well-known PD, of course. He did. He brought in penalty points. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, Bobby Malloy, as Minister for Local Government, he wrote this heartfelt letter to Jack Lynch. Now, this is a private letter, which yeah. was only released under the 30-year rule, uh, to teach Jack Lynch. And he was concerned that, you know, an additional 800 Gardaí were being recruited, but none were being assigned to traffic duty, yeah. right? And this is what he wrote. The road deaths figures issued by the Gardaí for January alone show another shocking increase to 62 deaths, 22 more than in January 1971. It looks as if we must expect 700 road deaths this year, and at least 25,000 people injured unless we take some drastic action to prevent it. The big gap I see in the whole organisational approach is the low level of traffic supervision and enforcement of statutory requirements by the Gardaí. It is commonly accepted that speed limits and road signs can virtually be ignored as long as one gets away with it. There is a plethora of bangers on the road with bald tyres, defective steering and little or no brakes. Cars are more frequently not taxed or insured. Above all, there is a frightening, though confidential, evidence of the level of alcohol in the bodies of accident victims, while drivers under the influence are a common sight after closing hours. I don't think we can be morally justified in not assigning men and equipment to the protection of road users. And he goes on then um, to say that drunk driving and excessive speed should be eliminated or reduced to a tolerable level. And he wrote of the despair which I feel. I even thought of asking for a day of national mourning for the 600 dead last year wow. and making it an annual event. Wow. Well, do you know how prescient is that? Because uh, I, I knew Bobby Malloy subsequently because that, that letter's from 1972. Yeah. I think I'm right in saying, I'll have to look up the stat, but I think that might have been the actual top of the curve. And I think it worked out at 648 yeah. deaths that year uh, when you had a third the amount of cars doing a third the amount of mileage and everything Bobby Malloy said there was true 20 years later as a youngster in the AA myself I was lobbying um, for the creation of a guard the traffic corps, a professionalised guard the traffic corps, uh, and the creation of a penalty point system modelled directly on the UK's. Um, and you know, eventually we became successful in that. There was a 
broad groundswell of opinion, people, voices as diverse as Gay Byrne yeah. and various others, yeah. got heavily involved in road safety. Yeah. And I plugged away like Billy yeah. myself. And a lot of reforms were made. Um, again, don't want to be the rooster claiming credit for the sunrise. But one of the things that happened is we sort of caught up with everybody else in Europe. Um, and all we had to do was, Bobby Malloy laid out in 1972 was paint by numbers, do the things that the Swedes and the Brits and the Dutch and the Germans had already done successfully, have a traffic or have a penalty point system, have a drunk drive law and take it seriously, take the bangers off the road via a national car test. And now we have 150 road deaths per year and we regard that number as too unacceptable. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So consider the road we have travelled. The road we've travelled. Uh, no, it, it's fascinating. And I mean, the kids often ask me, well, you know, why doesn't their grandmother have a... Um, didn't she do a driving test? Yeah. I said, well, there were no driving tests before 1964. Seatbelts were not being automatically put into cars until 1971. Yeah. But they weren't actually a legal requirement in Ireland until the end of the 1970s. But you actually had to do something about these. And even introducing the breathalyzer at that stage, you know, you have to implement them. And you can actually make a difference very quickly mm. uh, when you start doing that. Yeah. Um, so in a sense, it was easy. Well, it took national determination and a social mandate. And but you've also got, you've got to make it socially unacceptable, I suppose. I'm very conscious now of, of the generation of students who I'd be dealing with, who a lot of whom are learning to drive, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, I, broadly speaking, they'd be very strict about safety oh, yeah. and about drinking and it's just it's not something they'd even contemplate now many of them because it's just uh, it's a bit like I mean I joke before it's a bit like going into a, a you know a, a pub or your golf club or something like that uh, and saying I had a great day today I cheated on my taxes uh, so I'm, I'm up 20 grand because I cheated the Batman uh, you know even if that were true it was socially shameful um, and should we all remember people saying oh, I drove from Dublin to Cork in two and a half hours got yeah. up to 110 on the motorway uh, we, we've grown up a bit um, but I guess that brings me to the generation that are going through your hands now um, I, I was going to ask you at the start of the interview but you know the structure went all over the place what, what, what is a day's work like uh, for a professor of modern Irish history um, you're you're exposed to and engaged in academic conversation with and mentoring and teaching uh, youngsters in their late teens, early 20s. Um, what are your impressions of that generation? If you, you, you can sort of characterize the generations that have preceded them, five generations of the independent state. Uh, what do you think of this coming generation? I think they're as complex as any generation, but like any generation, they're dealing with a specific set of challenges or, or circumstances and, of course, great opportunities. Yeah. I mean, they're luckier in many ways than previous generations. Most generations do say that. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, that's, you know, you, you're looking at what they have. But particularly because of the last couple of years, we are dealing with a lot of difficulties around making the transition. Mm. Um, a lot of our students, even coming to the end of their degree now, have not had a proper campus experience. Well, you had COVID, um, two years of COVID. Yeah, of. but even when they came back, and we were delighted to have the students back on campus, it didn't just switch like that. They were back to campus life. Because it's not as straightforward as that, and I discovered that. I mean, there's an awful lot of anxiety there. Now, I worry sometimes that what we would consider growing pains... Um, are being kind of medicalized and I'm, I'm not disputing the, the problems that are there but I think some of them are exaggerated too yeah. that you've got to start distinguishing between what are stresses and normal stresses and deadlines and challenges yeah. which are part of an education system uh, and what are and, actually and part of life part of life into absolutely it, yeah, yeah. 
Um, but you know, the you'd notice here now the campus was very quiet in the evenings. Mm. And that's a I reflection too. I don't hear the clatter of pool yeah. balls. I don't hear people yeah. behaving And even the trap is closed, as we used to call it. The trap where all the pool tables were, where I used to work when I was a student. Uh, I ran yeah. 17 games there once, yeah. I think. Well, I got free pool, which is even better. Uh-huh. But that sense of um, an active campus life, you know, after the lectures or whatever, um, there are a number of different reasons why it's not easy for people who have been used to, you know, essentially being isolated um, to interact then with others when they come on campus. They don't know each other that well and they might find it uh, uh, tricky. A lot of people have problems, obviously, with housing. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Like we have some students who are getting in the car at the crack of dawn, 100 miles away. They can't hang around in the evening. No, they can't. And, and, and you know, it, 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 it's a little bit of a drug, but, you know, Zoom kind of enables that and perhaps therefore stops us solving it, which yeah. is a disgrace in itself. But one of the things about the college experience, surely, is that it's supposed to be the college experience. Yeah. I mean, if you think about what a college conceptually was, it wasn't a place where people received tuition in an academic discipline to a standard that yeah. was graded as satisfactory. It was a place where ideas clashed, where dialogue occurred, mm. where, where, where uh, and, huh. you know, where, where, where uh, new wisdom is learned, if yeah. you like, through and I mean, the crucible. We are still, like, we are still getting that. And, you know, we still have very smart people making very smart arguments and, mm. and, and writing very good material. Um, there's, you know, there's a wide diversity and mix. You know, when you look at UCD now on the campus, um, and who it's made up of. It's a very, very different place than yeah. it was when I was uh, here as an undergraduate. Um, but you've got to consider, I suppose, as well, you know, what, what particular issues have defined them yeah. in recent years? You yeah. know, uh, what are the causes for them? What are the anxieties that they might mm. have? And I mean, if you, even if you think this year alone, think of all the focus on war, yeah. on climate change, on big existential questions. Yes. And like well, I remember they feed in into obviously anxiety. Yeah, I remember in our time it was it was the doomsday clock, and you yeah. know there's CND badges and evidence, yeah. and uh, it, you know it it it, it might seem um, simple now, but we did fear the it end did. of the and world. And my mother, you know, would have talked about yeah. you know her class being asked to drop to their knees and pray that the world wouldn't end at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. you know, but like they had to take ownership of it. Yeah. And deal with it. Yeah, um, you have to rise to those challenges, no matter what they were, no, no matter how grave they are. You know, and I would like to think that students who are studying history, or indeed politics, or any of the humanities subjects, that in a way they are being equipped yeah. to do precisely that. You know, yeah, uh, and to make the arguments and and to have a broader sense of how these things emerged and where we've come from. I, I think particularly in the humanities, because, you know, for, for disciplines like mathematics or engineering, uh, I'm sure they benefit hugely from the collegiate experience. Um, but but nevertheless, it, it feels like a more linear, um, you know, s- set of information that you're absorbing. Yeah. But the humanities are, com- I, if they have a function, it probably is to allow a society to talk to itself yeah. and decide what the engineers should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are, are our students doing that? Or does a grumpy old man in me think that they're just, you know, it's just a degree factory, it's just going to be a CV Well, that's what worries me. And I think that's partly related to the lack of campus activity that I've yeah. noticed in recent times. It's not just COVID related. It is about a sense that we'll come in and we'll do our business and then we'll go home. Mm. I never thought about the campus like that. And it, like there is grumpy old man stuff and that, but it, it, it is also about a different way of viewing different 
experiences in education and different levels uh, of education. Is, are things and, like the L and H and the HIST still? Yeah, they're, they're still going, but I, I, they're not. They're not the powerhouses that they used to. Yeah. Be, you know, I mean, we were always debated. I was a student journalist, just journalist as well. That yeah, was my big thing. Yeah. You know. Uh, we had a college tribune here, which was established by that Vincent right. Brown that uh, right. as another yeah. one of the tribune titles. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And it survives to this day. I was probably a uh, couple of years ahead of you. I think I'm three years older than you. Um, but I remember I won the Maiden Speakers Medal in the LH. Yeah, and I enjoyed which, it. Yeah. And, but it's a great training as well. It is. And I'm, like, I'm not saying those things don't go on. They still do. I mean, talented uh, student journalists. What I don't get to the same extent is a communal engagement with precisely what you're talking about. Is yeah. that this can be... Uh, the epicenter of debate yes and discussion and you know is it uh, a tolerant campus for uh, dissenting use that word loosely um, I was listening to something one of the American guys Bill Maher was talking about he was talking to somebody from a US campus uh, who had been boasting about how diverse they were because they had a gay society and a colour society and this society and that society uh, and he was asked in all innocence do you have a Republican party uh, society <laughs> It tumbleweed blew through the room so uh, not that diverse then uh, is UCD guilty of that or, or, to an extent I mean what do you think well I mean you know there's always been a huge variety of, of different clubs and societies and you know political parties yeah, um, yeah. obviously we haven't had Freshers Week now uh, for a while so there would be a, a wide variety there people are free to say whatever they want uh, you would, you would, you, you would yeah. think in theory um, cancel culture I find abhorrent mm. and I'm very conscious of the privilege I have of academic freedom Yeah, uh, and I prize it and we all prize it you know and any attempts to try and dilute that uh, would make me and others you know very angry yeah. uh, and resist it um, but I think students too need to be conscious particularly when they're politically active and they have to be conscious of the need to listen to yes. those they despise yeah. and you know to see that the whole idea of a university is about the exchange of ideas it's not about shutting down ideas that you don't like it's not about um, this just being a, a centre for what they regard as progressive yeah. voices yeah. or a safe space or yeah, you know, yeah. intellectually a college yeah. is never meant to be a safe no, space it's not, very opposite. To, it's not supposed to be a harbour we've had fierce rows here in recent times about the Confucius Institute right and the Confucius Institutes have been set up by the Chinese government all over the world. Yes. And they're designed to promote Chinese culture. Um, Long term to influence hearts, minds, policies. Yeah, but they're also propaganda centres. Yes, exactly. In that and, way. you know, there's been concern here about um, the Confucius Institute on campus, particularly when it got involved uh, in the teaching of a particular programme that the Department of Politics here at the School of Politics and International Relations was concerned about. So that generated interesting debate. Um, now this again was, was you know during the period yeah. uh, of COVID and all that so it wasn't that there were students mobilising in, in large numbers to protest against mm. that we don't I suppose have that culture to the same extent there have been protests yeah. about accommodation there have been protests about cost of living issues and there have been uh, I think very positive signs that students will mobilise about climate and will mobilise yeah. in you know in recent years about same sex uh, marriage and, and, about, and, and yeah, those are areas where we needed them oh very much and, yeah. and we still do yeah um, particularly around house and it's very uplifting to yeah. see that and, and it's crucial but I would like to see them extend that activism yeah um, and, and to broaden it uh, and also be conscious that you know like we're dealing with a very fraught time when it comes to 
gender and sexual yeah. identity questions. And we should that, also the, the polarization that goes on, which can it can be ratcheted up to ten very quickly. I, I, well, that's you know that's a very good way of phrasing it, Dermot. I mean, the, the tendency amongst people these days to reach for the knob and go straight to eleven, um, in, in in response to any trigger. Um, so, if for example somebody misgenders somebody in a letter, um, okay, not good, but. Surely the most you have there is an incidence of bad manners. Yeah. Uh, the most. Um, is the appropriate punishment, you know, cancelling the person, completely taking their books off the library shelves? Yeah. It, it seems absurd, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, or even those who set themselves up as censors. Yeah. When I think of the history we have in this country of censorship and the impact that it had, and again, we weren't alone in that, in any sense. But the idea that the self-appointed moral guardians can decide who does and does not speak on a university campus, yeah. I think that's hugely problematic. And we, I think that's a big issue in the States as well. Yeah, we, we didn't need the Catholic Church to oppress ourselves, in a sense. They, you know, they provided supervision, yeah. but it was supervision of, of a, um, a compliant and um, you know, fully onboard population. We policed ourselves. The poor girl who got pregnant um, you know, everybody was complicit in what happened to her. Yeah. Um, the you know third son who was forced to become a priest because there's no yeah. way he was getting the farm. Um, we were all complicit in yeah. this, and we, we can see that now. But are the the twenty first century blind spots uh, yeah. are the ones that, that oh, absolutely. Been. And again, that's you know the, the, those blind spots spots are a product of, yeah. of recent times and are and, and are of their time. What it's hard to predict, I suppose, is, is whether they will endure yeah. in the long run or will, there, will they go out of fashion or will a conclusion be reached that that was too excessive and not in the interests of you yeah. know, true what, freedom of expression? What, one of your books, which uh, um, is, or it's just a series of essays, but it's under, under the title What If? Mm. And um, it was very interesting speculation. What if Michael Collins had not been shot? What if um, uh, Britain or Germany had decided to, uh, what if Britain has decided to seize Irish treaty ports? Um, what if we had not joined the European Union? Um, and those are fascinating speculations, but sometimes history doesn't to turn on a pivot there's there's a there's a tide that's coming anyway uh, um, so in, in Ireland's case you, we don't know what's going to happen you, you don't know the trigger points of the next couple of decades but where do you think the tide is going where do you think Ireland is, 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 is going to look like this is why historians have enough to be doing yeah with the past to be predicting the future uh, is, of course, very, very tricky. Past performance uh, is no guide. To no, but I suppose, you know, going back to what I was saying about cycles, uh, I think we're in for a very rocky couple of years or perhaps longer. Mm. Um, now, there were times when we reached our, 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 what we thought was our lowest point. Yeah. The way the great playwright Tom Murphy used to put her, you know, is it, it is out of this darkness or this despair that we will find the way. Uh, and you know you can recover, mm. and like you can actually reach a point uh, where you've got to really draw on your reserves of creativity. And like we have great reserves of that. We like, do. We, we, we do, do have a lot to be positive about in relation to that, and, we, and I hope we will always have that. And I suspect we will. Um, but again, you know, g given the kind of economic model that we have, mm. uh, given the exposure, I suppose that we have, and given the unpredictability, like the big issue 
in the future without any shadow of doubt is climate change. Oh, yeah, of course. And sometimes yeah. when I see the preoccupation uh, with other issues to the neglect of that, mm. it infuriates me because, you know, you cannot have any future if you don't have a handle on climate change. Yeah. Uh, so everything else does pale into insignificance, and that's not to downplay the impact that those things are having on yeah, people's it, lives. It, it, it also means, that it, well, in my view at least, while that is of, of overriding importance, it can't be the only conversation we ever have, no. and and it can't be an excuse for like sulking on other issues. Um, and I guess in the same way, you, you, you can't take every issue of the day and force it through your preferred lens um, you might be the world's most passionate person on housing or on trans rights yeah. or on um, Irish neutrality um, but you know we have to be able to have a conversation and build a society even when there are things we don't agree on yeah but we also have to grow up and realise that like we can't all get dispensations when it comes to climate change yeah you know for example uh, we can always say, oh, but look, this country in particular is so hugely reliant on its agricultural exports and, and, and what we generate. And on its oil. Not and that we have know, any. But you know, all of it. You know, like, we have to get rid of that mindset if we're to take it seriously, you know. And of course, there's always going to be limits on, on what we can realistically do, particularly when you consider our size and our lack of yeah. heft. But that's not the way to think about it, obviously. You know, we we have a lot going for us in relation to what we have naturally. Yeah. You know, and you know, there's still an awful lot to celebrate in relation to that. Uh, and it's about trying to you know to marshal that uh, in you know in a very modern way. Yeah. Uh, and in a very progressive way, there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to do that. I mean, it, it'll be very interesting over the next couple of years politically as well, because clearly we are dealing with a changed political landscape. Yeah. You know, the two big parties that came out of the Civil War are no longer the dominating force. Well, they're starting parties. to look like the same big party. No, and um, I mean, they are formally sharing, sharing power now. So Civil War politics is over. Sinn yeah. Féin, obviously, is, is really on the rise and is likely to be in government before too long. In some way, shape or form. Yeah, and I mean, that's going to be very interesting. One wonders whether they'll, um, really simplistic here, do a Tony Blair pivot to the centre, win their majority that way, or double down on the dark green and win their majority that way with the help of populism. <laughs> um, I, I hope it's the former. I, I feel but of course, better. ultimately, it'll be the electorate that will decide Yeah, of that. course, yeah. The generational question is always going to be interesting. I remember when I was a student here as an undergraduate, if you were politically ambitious, yeah. you'd join Fianna Fáil because Fianna Fáil were nearly always in power. And that's where that's, that's where, where the ambitious went. students yeah. went. You wouldn't do that now. You know, you go to Sinn Féin. So that generational question, you know, if you see a party on the up... They're attracting um, the young talent. They, they'd be attracting young talent. And of course, they're also because of the moment and the, the crises of the moment. Yes. They're able to make hay out of, of, of serious crises in, in health and housing and so on. But of course, they're also going to have to make the transition from an opposition party to a governing party. Yes. And that may well involve less attention being focused, perhaps, uh, on, on their green unity agenda. Yeah. Because there's just going to be so much to grapple with. And of course, there was a period in um, the early 1930s where Fianna Fáil 
were accused of being in the shadow of the gunmen and yes. had to make the transition to government. And Devil Air was very clever in that he appointed a minister for justice who didn't have a civil war background and he did want to appear to be, you know, safe pair of hands. These were and, early challenges for the free Yeah, and you may state. well, particularly, you know, it might sound cynical, uh, but I suspect that Sinn Féin could become the next Fianna Fáil, you know. Well, uh, um, you could well be right. You could well be right. And, and part of me hopes that the angry militant centre <laughs> will have its voice heard in some way, shape or form in a, in, in a world where we're listening to the polls all the time, as in the polarities. Um, well, it's a, it's a fascinating conversation. Um, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I, I hope we get the chance to catch up again um, and, and maybe to continue the conversation vanish down a couple of other rabbit holes and um, didn't get to ask you about things like your favourite car or anything like that but uh, perhaps, perhaps we revert to that another time um, but look, thanks for your hospitality not at all it's a pleasure to have you here it's nice to be able to do it here on a relatively quiet campus relatively quiet campus um, so back to your Harry Potter-esque professor's study and the piles of folders and the piles of books and uh, academia in operation uh, Dermot thank you very much You're being very kind you haven't pointed out just how bloody messy it is it makes me feel right at home (laughs) right at home Dermot thank you thank you so that's Dermot Ferrisher I hope you enjoyed the chat do remember to check out previous episodes I meet people like George Hook Nuala Carey Frankie Sheehan Theresa Mannion Paul Williams and plenty of others it's all there on seniortimes.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. Just Google Driving Life with Connor Faulkner and you can email me at connorfaulkner at gmail.com. Until next time, drive safely, live happily and come back and see us again. by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations.